Joel. Based on the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have a high priest over the body based on his um, opening the door to fellowship with God through him, the new and living way we have through his, his blood. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful and let us consider one another unto the stimulating of love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Maybe you can see it, maybe you can't, but the day is drawing near. You know how you know? Because the sun went down from our perspective, and it rose from our perspective. And that made you one day closer today to eternity, to meeting the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, to the end of the current order, which is walking by faith, not by sight. And as you see that day drawing near, we need to become more serious, not less about this. And that is awesome. There are more people today in your seats where you belong than there were last Sunday. That's a great trend. But now you're stuck. We expect you. We want you back. We're thrilled you're here. We love you. And we can't do, look, you and I cannot do our job as described by the apostles unless we come together. We can't. We can't consider one another unto the stirring up of love and good works. We cannot if we are forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And uh, that is, I'm talking about the exercise, the lifting phase of this bodybuilding project, the body of Christ being built up into the character of Christ. The lifting phase, the put it forth phase, that's where you deal with one another. The feeding phase, you know, the best part about an exercise regimen is, the, is when you get to eat. You know, the hard part is when you have to go to the gym, but pretty soon you learn, actually, I like both of those. The eating part's good, but the putting it into practice part is great too. Game time, uh, going to lift weights in the gym, whatever you want to describe it as when you actually have to deal and live what you believe. That's what I'm talking about. The application of the word is with one another. And I'm thrilled that we could get together. I consider what we do to be more essential than anything else we do when we come together for the word. And um, I'm sorry that we cannot pray yet, but we will. We will be, I'm not, I say pray, I mean sing. I'm sorry we can't sing yet. We will sing. Of course, we can pray and we will pray. And we do want to sing God's praises. We're told in Ephesians chapter five, that being filled by the spirit means singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord is a consequence. If God, the spirit is using his word in us, then we need to have a song in our heart and, and praise to our savior all the time. It's part of your life of worship and certainly getting together to worship in song is a big part of being Preston City Bible Church. But a bigger part is assembling to study God's word together and to consider each other unto the love, the stirring up of love and good works. So I always give you a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship with God and then I'll open us in prayer.
Father, we love you and thank you for eternal life through your Son, that we have this life. We know you and the Lord Jesus whom you've sent, and we can know you better as we pay attention to your word today. We know that's why you've given it to us, for that's what you've told us through the word. We have it so we'll know you. And today, as we consider the church, the mystery of the church, the doctrine of the Christian privilege, we ask that we would not take it for granted. Don't let us waste our birthright with distraction from this world. Rather, let us love you and be in the world for, its, uh, for the salvation of some, but not of it. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're on part two of six Sundays through Ephesians. Six Sundays through Ephesians. And uh, that's a fast way to go through a very theologically dense book. And it's, in a way, you could say we won't do justice to it. That's certainly true. Another way, though, if you go fast or overview something, you get a sense of where things are and how it works. And that's very important, especially if you're going to do something really careful and, and, uh, and uh, uh, focused on the details. You don't want to lose the forest for the trees, as they say, or the tree for the leaves or pine needles, whichever tree you have in mind. Um, so we're in Ephesians chapter one. And uh, by way of just quick review, last hour I showed everyone the outline of Ephesians. It's really two steps, two big pieces, chapter one through three and chapter four through six. Chapter one through three is the privileges of the church. The body of Christ is talking about the universal church, the privileges of the universal church. And chapter four through six is the practice of the universal church. And so it starts with privileges, the doctrine of what you have because you have Christ. And then it ends with what we do, what we do in this. I see the swinging of a baseball bat. My favorite illustration of this two-step process is the swinging of the bat. What do I mean? Well, let me just put you back where I was. There I was little league baseball coach. Well, I think it's coach Walker was the first one to put me on this coach Bobo was the one that I think did the most for me on this fantastic little league coaches in Longview, Texas. There are other kids, dads, right? This is back when you got a trophy. If you uh, won anyway, um, so, so they taught us, I'm not going to demonstrate it because I'm not wearing that kind of coat. But um, they taught us that when you swing the bat at the ball, a couple things. They taught us to swing level. That was the technique they would teach. Today, they're saying swing under, you know, to go up, which uh, that, to me, that's some good physics, right? If you want the ball to go that way, you hit it that way. But anyway, so, but j just get a hit, just meet the ball, that kind of thing they would say. But they would also teach us to follow through. They would teach us that, yes, where the ball is coming across the plate, right there that's the point at which you want to meet that ball somewhere somewhere in this angle of the event you want to you want to meet the ball and hit it but you're not done and golfers i'm as i've watched them they have this thing same thing too they hit the ball down on the tee way way down there and where does the club head end up after a golf swing over here because they all the way around all right now, they don't spin their bodies, but the club the head just goes all the way around their body because they're following through, because they're giving the full thrust of their force with the full motion. And there's something about the follow through that makes it actually all work. If you don't have follow through, you don't really get a hit, I'm told. Now, I've been golfing uh, four times in my life and they all went the same way. They all went the same way. Um, when I did hit the ball, it would always have some sort of wicked slice where I was just impressed that it went. 
it didn't ever go where I wanted, but it went sometimes. A lot of times I'd hit a, a ground ball, <laughs> right? I'm just like ridiculous, right? But, um, but what I did notice is that when golfers are swinging, they do this awesome swing that um, Matt could, could demonstrate for you. Matt Goth, your uh, amateur golf pro, could show you. Um, it's this beautiful thing that has this follow through. And I believe that if you do uh, only verses four through six, if you only go for Christian practice and these are the things we do, then it's like you're running through life as a follow through. You're swinging the baseball bat like this. You miss the whole point. If you only live your life in the doctrine of chapters one through three is what we have in Christ and you don't follow through and live it out, then you're swinging the bat like that. It's basically a bunt. I'm bunting through life. Don't bunt. Go for the swing for the bleachers. We want to get a, a home run. We want to hit me and let's get a grand slam. We want to actually do what we're here to do. So your life is not about just the truth of your privileges in Christ. You need to know these things. This is the rocket fuel that makes the thing fly. But you don't want to be a loaded up rocket with plenty of fuel that doesn't actually launch. You want to do what's presented. And this is one of my favorite things to harp on, obviously. Now, in Ephesians chapter one, we're looking at Paul's prayer. We had the, the blessings last week of our position in Christ, the blessings that, are, that, that Paul praises God for. And we said there is a theological, uh, a whole theological doctrine just in three through 14 of what God is doing for us by his grace in Jesus Christ. And now today we've been looking at the prayer that Paul has that we would receive a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And I said, if you look in at verse 17, you have the actual content of Paul's prayer because of your performance in Christ, because of your, your faith in him and the love that's the follow through of your faith in him. You love him. So you love, I mean, you trust him. So you do what he says. So you love that's the, that's the way it works. You see that since the rocket seems to be firing over there in Ephesus, he's saying they haven't yet lost their first love as, um, as they will be told by John in uh, revelation three. He says, because of the, your success, I give thanks to you all the time. I don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what I ask. Here's what Paul asks for the church. Here's what I want you to pray for me. Last hour, I actually had the first time this has ever happened to me uh, since all my time I've dealing with, been dealing with chronic Lyme disease. And it is a real thing. Lyme's, Lyme ticks here will bite you with 38 different things. The thing that, that bit me had four or five different things that we've tested positive for and actual expensive blood tests. All right. And so I, last hour I had a freeze. I couldn't like remember what I was talking about, but I remember thinking this is a lot of fun. We're having a good time talking about the invisible things in Christ. You might pray that the Lord would relieve me from all these co-infections with Lyme disease. Thank you. You might pray that, um, you might pray that just that, that the study goes well, that I have words to say, as Paul says, the opening of my mouth. You might pray that uh, my family does well and we've been praying for Krista and, and for baby Thomas and everything's going great. And we thank God for that and for your prayers and your care for us. You might pray for a lot of things, but the most important thing that I want you to pray for me is in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. 
This is the most loving you can do, the most loving thing you can do for another human being. And it's only available to believers, by the way. He's talking to Christians in this context, but this is what you want for one another. Hey, there are people in your life that are Christians that have hurt you, doesn't need to take away one iota from how much you want this for them. This, this is what it means to love someone as a Christian. What Paul is going to say he wants for these Christians that are getting it right is what you want for me, what I want for you, what you want for one another. This needs to characterize the prayers of Preston City Bible Church. If we could get a composite distillation down into one little vial of what Preston City Bible Church, as down to a, a, a man and woman, what we're offering to God in prayer. And he showed us if it didn't have this content as a focal thing, if this wasn't something that you're in your prayer life going for, for one another, then that would be a real shame and a waste and a missed opportunity of God's revelation. Because God tells us this is the goods. This is what we're supposed to value. Now, here's the problem in my time in which I live. Let me use our, our, our troubled racial situation as an illustration of our time that'll help you understand where I'm coming from. There are all kinds of things people are worried about today. Economic equal outcomes is one of them. Equal treatment or equity before the law is another one. The consideration of someone's personal situation compared to your situation, which by the way, you know one of those. I know mine, I don't know yours, right? I love when people say, well, you know, you people like you, this is how you, you think. I... I think like I think, and I'm pretty sure I have a good idea of what that's like, but I'm pretty sure you have no idea because you don't think with my equipment. Well, you know, the way, you're, the way you think. Well, that's like me saying the way you think. That's a little bit of an overstep, isn't it? But I'm just saying we're all worried about all kinds of different things. We basically have multiple cultures competing for dominance in our culture, and that's a state of constant warfare, cultural warfare at, at best. It's just how it is. But let, let's just put that aside. I don't value that. I don't value one or the other culture dominating because every culture in this world has been bitten by the world, by Satan's system of deception. And everything has a lot of truth and a little bit of error. And if you eat it, you die. It's all true in all cultures. Go join any culture. You're going to find that we are still the enemy. It's people. So I don't value this, this thing really. What I value is what Paul prays for in Ephesians chapter one. It really is the alternative and it really does set you free and truly Christian men and women, black, white, whatever color will embrace this and it will transform our worldview and completely free us from this lie that we're chained to our genetics, that we're chained to our history uh, of, of, of bad choices from our ancestors in any case, whoever the ancestors are whether it was the people that bought the slaves from the Africans or the Africans that sold the slaves to the people buying them, whatever the case was in the history. This is not your destiny. This is how we got from point A to point B. That's how you ended up where you are today. And what do you do with today? This is Paul's prayer. This is what he's after. And that's, that is the freeing. That is the solution to this problem. Now it's a spiritual solution. It's invisible. I don't necessarily feel it. Most Christians don't know about it because they haven't unpacked it because here's what happens when I'm reading my Bible. Here's what happens when I'm reading my Bible. I read along what it says. 
For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in christ the phone rings it's okay i put my finger i know where i am hang up the phone in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the right hand of all heavenly places far above all rule authority and power and dominion every name that is a name not only in the age but also this age but also in the age to come wasn't this edifying to everyone this is what we call reading through where's the good stuff let me get to imitating Christ or imitating God the Father in love in Ephesians 5.1. Let's talk about not being cast here and there by every wind of doctrine. That will preach. But this stuff, this doctrinal stuff that I can't really see or touch, I just read through, it's really not grabbing me. Friends, here's my conviction on the study of the word here at the uh, beginning of year 14 with Preston City Bible Church. Here's where I am and on, on what we just did. That is all true but I didn't necessarily grasp a thing that it was saying as I was casually reading through. I think casual reading makes casualties sometimes, right? I think it does because you just heard the riches, but you didn't necessarily appreciate the riches. You didn't necessarily get it. Here's what happens to me. I have a passage like that and I'm like, I feel like we just ran through a bunch of deep stuff, a bunch of deep material. I feel like I just drove over the top of a gold mine. But you know what? That gold mine is going to capture me. It's going to make me study. It's going to make me trace out meanings of words. I'm going to have to go and what does fullness mean? What is all in all in verse 23? What does even that mean? He is all in all. What, how does this work with the rest of the Bible? I mean, that's going to be the study that's going to dominate my attention. And this involves hermeneutics, the principles of interpretation, the exercise of hermeneutics. It's going to involve study of Greek. It's just going to be hard. So we can't do that. We can't be involved in something like that. Let's read a proverb and drink some iced tea and go about our business. That's what happens. And people are not willing to go after the riches that are here. But God chose in his sovereign will for Paul the very logical rabbinical thinker to write these things in Greek so that they would be clearly set forth and we would have to ponder them. And I want to trace out some of these riches with you today. I cannot do what I would like to do with this, which is take right, right now because we've planned a different plan, but I would like to take, you know, a week of verse, but we're not going to do that. We're going to cover this prayer through verse 23 today and seek to understand exactly what God is saying. And this is where we were. Again, this is how far we got first hour. Let me do a little bit of explanation as we exposit. On account of your success, he says, I also, after hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love which you have toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks concerning you, making mention of you in my prayers. First of all, who's he talking to? People that believe in Jesus Christ as their savior and live it out, live out their faith and their love for all the saints. Christians, be the audience that Paul's talking about. Believe in Jesus as your savior, not just when you first trusted in Christ, but continue to trust him. 
Jesus is our only hope. And so we trust in him. And that faith means I'm responsible to obey him because he says he's my Lord. And so I need to do what he says, which is to love the saints. This is basic Christianity. Basic Christian modus operandi is we trust in God and love him. And so we love what he loves. Do I trust in man? No, I trust in the God man, Jesus Christ. And so I love because I trust in Christ. And that relationship is, if you will, it's boiling over to everything else I'm doing. That's basic Christianity. That's the people to whom Paul is talking about. And in as much as it's true for you, and I know it because you are, and I are communicating or I'm hearing reports or I, uh, I hear a report. I pull in to see somebody that's sick and they tell me, oh, so-and-so was just here. Oh yes. Didn't know what was going on. Left and right hand didn't know what was going on. Hey, you know, pastor, uh, we're doing great. You want to just pray real quick? We got to put dinner on. That is, I'm, I'm so happy that this church has this doing this. These things happen to me. And when this happens, I'm where Paul is, that you're loving one another, that you're doing what the Bible says. And that's the nature of Paul's letter. So because of this, I don't stop giving thanks concerning you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now we know what he's grateful for. Now, what's he going to ask for? What does God want for me and you? What does Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ say God wants for me and you? Here it is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory will give you, you who have Christ and are walking by the spirit in love, that he will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the spiritual knowledge of him. This means that we are not complete, even if we're loving one another. We're not there. We're never going to say we're there. We'll never get there until we're there. And there is face to face with Jesus Christ. So we're in a growing process, he says. And this is what he wants for them, that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the spiritual knowledge of him. This is the whole mindset that he's talking about. The spirit he's talking about here is not a personal being. It is the effect of God, the Holy Spirit, using his word in your human spirit, your inner man, to reflect the character of Christ and what you want, what you think, what you say. Okay, a real reflection. This is the spirit he's talking about. It's a mindset. It's a mindset. Let me prove it to you. If you want to hold the place in Ephesians chapter two, a mere few verses later, Paul says, you were formerly walking, uh, verse two, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's a personal being, that's Satan. According to the uh, a prince of the power of the air, the prince of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, the of the spirit cannot mean a personal being. We already had Satan. He doesn't mean that every unbeliever is demon possessed. He means that every unbeliever who is de deceived by Satan, the prince of the power of the air, that, that, that prince of the power of the air is the prince of a spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. It is a mindset. It is a worldview. He uses Penuma both times the same way. It's your mindset. And in chapter one, he's, he's telling you the right mindset. Wisdom and revelation that I'm characterized by God's word. I believe this is the filling of the spirit. I believe this is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's what he's talking about when he says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory will give you this mindset. This is absolutely a legitimate use. It is Paul's use of the word spirit here. We talk about it all the time. I talked recently about America's fighting spirit. That's not a personal being. It's not a spirit like a, like a, a ghost or the Holy Spirit. This is the attitude, the mindset. 
That's what he's after when he says spirit, I'm convinced. And this is the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the epignosis, the spiritual knowledge. The knowledge of a personal relationship with God is what that word means, I believe, as it's used by Paul in Colossians and Ephesians. Epignosis is a big battlefield word. It, it, a lot of people say it, it only and always means exactly this, but sometimes it just means knowledge. But epi, the, the preposition on front of the word gnosis, epignosis, this, this type of knowledge he's saying, it, it almost always, if not always, means that it's directed. There's a directed nature of this knowledge. And so it's not just a general sense of knowledge. All truth is God's truth. My systematic theology will encompass all, all inputs. And the Bible will interpret them, correct them, criticize them. But he's not talking about knowledge. He's talking about a knowledgeable relationship with God. And that comes through the word, through living it, not just knowing it. See, that's, the, that's a red herring. It's not just knowing it. It's doing it because it's who you become from what you believe to what you do. Because, now here's the method. We said the method that God brings about this spirit of revelation and uh, wisdom is by opening our hearts, enlightening the eyes of our hearts. It means that literally, um, the eye, there, it, it, well, I'm sorry, it's a figure of the, the heart having eyes. The inner man, the inner you has these eyes. Now you can't see physical things with these eyes. This is his way of saying you come to know something. You come to be aware of something. This is the body of spiritual truth. See, this is the most complicated and important thing Paul wrote perhaps. And nobody's willing to do it. People will not join with Paul and think abstract thoughts. Friends, the body of God's truth that you cannot see is your life. There is nothing more or better or other for you and me. There's nothing else. But there's plenty for us to see and look at. But it's not your life. But this is what he's talking about. This is why it's so vital. I'll do everything I can to set it up. I'll try to put it in an ice cream cone. But I want you to get this. The spiritual truth that nobody that you know knows about. It's not Gnosticism. It's not mystery religion. It's right here in Greek. But you have to think. And you can because the spirit of God is in you. You can know God on this. But here's what he says. There is in your heart this capacity to be opened to this information that is not just information, it's relationship. And it comes from God's revelation in the power of God's spirit as you open yourself to it. And what is your job? Say yes. Yes, Lord, what you say is what I believe. One God in three persons? Yes, I believe that. And it's the effect of God's truth on your inner man as designed. And this is what happens. If you and I are given the spirit of wisdom and revelation, this mindset, because he has opened our hearts to see, to be enlightened by these riches that he's going to outline, then we will have this mindset he wants us to have. This is why maturing Christians will say there is only one way. It's God's way. And the more I change to reflect God's way, the more I'm on the path. It's God, we're just trying to accommodate our creator and say, not my will, but your will be done. Very offensive, very offensive. But that's what a maturing Christian is ultimately gonna conclude. Now here's where a sophomore Christian goes. Oh, it's only God's way, I've got it. You can, you can check with me. It's just self-righteousness. No, no, no. 
we're all sinful works in progress that are, to a lesser or greater degree, understanding God and refle reflecting on Him. Classic example, room full of Christians that have been in the Word for a long time. We bring up the test case of what about a Christian that you find is in need? What's your responsibility, given that you know of a fellow believer that's in need? It's amazing the different answers you get when people are being honest. All of a sudden, someone's politics come into the conversation. You're like, we're not even talking about politics. We're talking about a theological question of when you become aware of another Christian's need. Oh, well, I don't have any responsibilities. It's a very interesting suggestion for someone that hasn't spent a lot of time in the Bible, even though they might have spent a lot of time in the church. Now, very obviously, very clearly from from Matthew through Revelation, you've got responsibilities when you become aware of a brother or sister in need. It's just how it is. Prove it, pastor. Read James. Oh, we don't read James. I know. It's basic Christian doctrine. It's very basic. And well, that would, that would involve us dealing with the phrase true religion. We're not in a religion. We're in a relationship. What is James talking about? And, and so it's amazing how we're all a work in progress is my point. You might miss it. You might misunderstand. It happens. And Paul has a provision for that too. He says, the Lord will show you if you differ in anything. He'll bring this to your awareness. We're all growing. It's very frustrating when you try to have a fellowship, a fellowship with a believer on the things of God and you're, and you're different. You differ on the way things, the things of God work. Like, ah, Ephesians isn't talking about what you're telling, telling us, pastor. That some, it's very frustrating when you see that because we're just all in different places. That's called love. That's called patience. That's long suffering. That's the awareness that this is about equipping others to have a relationship with God. And the relationship you and I have is a secondary benefit. It really, it's a secondary thing. If you hate me, but you love God, well, you're going to change hating me eventually. If you love me, but you hate God, that's useless. So it, it's really all about God. Now, what will happen in my heart? What will I become aware of? What will I become conscious of, occupied with, focused on, despite all the trouble that I see in this life, despite all the things that I'm worried about, what will become the focus of my attention for me to have this spirit of wisdom and revelation? I will come to know what is the hope of God's calling on my life. And the word that it is to focus on there is hope. Hope means that I expect God to do what he said. It doesn't mean, oh, maybe yes, or maybe no. As you know, Elpis, hope is the expectation of God doing what he promised. It is faith hardened into expectation. Faith is not quite expectation. It's believing him and trusting him. Expectation is where I'm like, where is it? Let's go. Expectation. I'm expecting God to do what he said. And that is verses 3 through 14, emphasizing inheritance, emphasizing our destiny, your hope is not here and now. Your hope is what Jesus says at the judgment seat of Christ because you suffered with him here and now. That is the way, that's, and so Paul takes you straight to eschatology. I wish I had a blackboard. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. I'm much better at writing that way than in real life. Eschatology. What is eschatology? It's that stuff that those Christians that really want to make it a college class talk about. No, the college class has no idea about the depth of, depth of these riches. We're just Christians. Friends, eschatology means the last things. It means where things are going. 
Where is this thing going? It's very simple to talk about it. It just means the last things. The end state is your attention. The present suffering is addressed as you have your focus on what's coming. That's what the hope of his calling does for you. Furthermore, what is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The word to focus on is plutos, wealth. There are two things so far. We're to know the hope of his calling, which takes us to the end state. It isn't the here and now. It's what I'm doing here and now, yes, as I suffer with him. But I'm expecting what he said for there and then, and then is forever and ever and ever and ever. And I'm not talking about we just go to heaven. His calling is not that we go to heaven. It's that you rule with Christ in a forever and expanding glorified kingdom. That's God's plan for you. You can read about that kingdom, for example, in Isaiah chapter 9. What is the hope of his calling? What is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, let me start to ballyhoo economics and economic theory. We have in the Bible a biblical worldview of economics, and it is not everyone ends up with the same size chicken in the same size pot over the same type of stove issued by the state. That is not the biblical view of economics. Economics is uh, what you have, what you do with scarce resources. You have scarce resources with multiple alternative uses. And so what you choose to do with those resources, that's a very helpful Thomas Sowell definition of economics. I've learned more from him on the concept of economics than I learned in my college class on economics because I was taught by a Keynesian who didn't really know economics very well. I found out after reading Thomas Sowell. Now, you have multiple alternative uses for scarce resources. What's the most scarce resource you have? The most valuable thing that you have. Let's just call it you. Got nothing else really except you. Anything else you have is connected to you by certain contracts, obligations, you know, whatever. But let's just say the most valuable thing is you have is you. I can prove it. How much would you sell me your arm for? Well, there's no price, hopefully. If you've got a price for your arm, you've got serious problems. We'll talk about it. But, but I'm just saying you. Now, what are you made of? What is there to you? What is there to you? Well, lots of things. What I'm talking about is the experience of life that you have. And now we're into what? what how do we measure the experience of life? One of our key measures starts with a T. Yeah. All you got is the minutes that God gave you on this earth for this life. Let's do the math real quick. Can y'all do some math with me? Pulpit math, it is not. I'm just gonna pull the calendar and pull the, the calculator up. This thing have a calculator on it. Joel, did you install the calculator? Yes, thank you. Calculator. Yeah, you can see that. I want the big calculator. There we go. Big buttons. Can y'all see that? All right, let's do some math real quick. Um, somebody give me a good average human lifespan, uh, in new England, 90. Good. Okay. 90. I said a good average. Well, let's don't do that because let's say that let's talk about fruit. Okay. So let's, let's be optimistic and say 90. Well, okay. 70 or 80, but let's do 90 anyway. And be, uh, this is how conservatives do reasoning as we, as we build the thing bigger than it needs to be. Okay. So seven, so nine, just, just in case, I mean, every gun's loaded just in case. Okay. 
Um, how, how much gas do you need in your tank? Fill it up. All right, here we go. 90. Let's take as a good long age. Now, 90 years. And how many days is that? 365. What's the right way to do that with leap years? Is it, is it 0.25 because of a leap year every four years? Let's do that. Times 365.25. Everybody with me? All right. Somebody guess without looking at what this number is going to be. Where are we? How, what's on the, um, the tens place or the, the, the what, how, what's on the, the ten thousands place? You think it's about 30,000? This is an old life. All the men that I know in my background have gone way before 90. I don't think they got into the thirties, thousands, 32,872 days and a half died after lunch. Born at dawn, died after lunch. All right. 32,875 days. That doesn't sound like many days. $15 an hour, 40 hour work week. I think that comes out to $36,000 a year. We don't think that's very much. That's not a, that's not a living wage in this culture, right? 32,872 days. Now here's what I think about that. And I've told you this since Proverbs back in 2007. I don't think that's enough. Deep in my heart, I believe eternity has been set. And I, like you, think that is not nearly enough days for what we are. God's image bearers, the highest order of earthly creation, the ability to not only calculate mathematics for rockets, which means calculus, which means changing mass with respect to time and space. Not only can we think that stuff through, we can put it into practice. Now we can do it in, in private sector. <laughs> but... It's amazing what God did when he made us in comparison to, you know, the animals, dolphins, lions, whatever, the, 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 the animals out there. 32,000 days, 33,000 days is not enough days. It's not enough days. But what it just did, hopefully, if you've never thought this through or seen this, if you've never done this math for yourself, hopefully this puts a little perspective on what a day is. What is a day? Well, I got a lot of them. I've got 33,000 of them. The more of those you spend, the more you start to realize these things are pretty expensive. They're pretty valuable. I have nothing more valuable than my time. Talk about resources. What is, what's going on in our culture today is a waste of resources. We're wasting time talking about, well, they get that when we don't have that. that and every, every, every political battle is always over trying to stimulate some sort of um, some sort of covetousness, right? And everybody you know can look at someone that has more and say, well, they have more. What ha how, why are they a better person? And it's just materialism. That's all it's, it's, I mean, philosophical, demonic materialism. Now, what I'm trying to show you is that if you'll adopt a biblical scale of values, you'll have a different economic theory. And you'll start saying, my time is not my money. My time is my life. What I do with my productivity I'm paid for that productivity. I'm paid, but it's not my time. You're not paying for my time. Does that make sense? 40 hours of your week, every week spent working. And you're saying all I did with that time was the money I got to show for it. Better not be. Better be I was working every moment to serve my savior. Better be that my life is hidden with Christ and God. And that's what my time is. So yes, I did the job. I was on it. I was productive. The Holy Spirit, by the way, empowered me to be productive. I'm loving my father and my savior through being productive and thanking him for the privilege of doing whatever it is. And now 
I'm paid, yes, for the productivity, but my time was my walk with God. See, there's a totally different way of looking at life. And what's happened in our world, obviously it always does, is we become materialists. We just say, all there is is all I can see and touch. And that's why in the Black Lives Matter organizational documents, they say we are Marxists. We are going to tear down capitalism. We're gonna burn down the American system. Okay, you've tipped your hand. Black lives do matter. All lives do matter. Black lives are people made in God's image. That's where they get their essential value from, not from their culture or their genetics. It's from the hand of God, like all people. And if you don't like hearing that, it's because you're worried about the other things in the movement, like Marxism, like the LBGT stuff that's all behind Black Lives Matter. Read it, read their documents, don't read it long. But see, there's a totally different way of thinking about life that even American Christendom hasn't really embraced because we haven't thought this through, that God would open our hearts to see something you can't see, that we would perceive spiritually the wealth of the glory of God's inheritance. This inheritance is in part, uh, in Colossians 3.24, a trade-off. You are trading service now for reward of inheritance later, and that is good economics. All that human good and evil involved in fixing broken human structures of temporary and passing away governance. All that stuff that everybody's worried about and trying to be social justice warriors and stuff, they're not fixing anything. They are, they are uh, going to be, it's the French Revolution. They're just, the people that started are going to get guillotined at some point. See, this is a, I keep taking you back to things you can see to show you we're wasting our lives focused on the wrong things. You cannot see the wealth of the glory of God's inheritance with these eyes. We need God to open our hearts to see this spiritually. And that means we've got a different attitude or spirit of wisdom and revelation. I'm thinking about the things of God. One of the great uh, 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 obstacles of this is a saying people have, oh, well, you know, you serious people that are in the Bible so much, your head is so high in the clouds that you're too spiritually minded, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You're just reinforcing the status quo. I'm not reinforcing the status quo. I'm a revolutionary against the status quo. The status quo is a disregard of the creator and pretending like Jesus hasn't come even among Christians to say that somehow we're going to bring forth his kingdom, which must come with a, a military conquest in Revelation 19. We're not going to bring a military conquest. Jesus is going to do this. This rod of iron that he's got to wield is because we're sinners. You're not going to fix that. The only answer you've got, whatever the problem you point out, is sin needs a savior. You need to see your sin and you need to trust in the savior. And so the spiritual answers are the answers but you're not going to get a consensus of Americans to see that, even American Christendoms, even those in American Christendom. So there are three things. We have the hope of his calling, which takes us to eternity. And with that comes the wealth of the glory of his inheritance, which is in eternity, in the saints. And the third thing, the surpassing greatness of his power. You need that right now. The surpassing overthrown, that, that's the origin of this word, the surpassing greatness of God's power for whom? God's power for whom? For us who believe. That's Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good. The reason is because God's working it. God's omnipotence is on display from now on in Ephesians chapter one. 
It's all going to be about God's omnipotence. That's the doctrinal category Paul sets upon to help you think through your present life. I've got my future set. I know I'm working now and suffering now with a view to the reward of the inheritance. And so I need God's power. I need his enablement. And this is the Christian life. I hope for you, I hope what I'm saying sounds familiar at one hand and kind of like, it sounds spiritual. I hope this, this information, this, this idea seems foreign and yet it's, it's right. It just seems foreign. It's because we've been distracted. It's because Satan has a, a program of deception. And the big one we're seeing culturally is materialism. What is materialism? It is not Charlie Brown lamenting that um, Chris, Christmas has become commercialized. Materialism is a philosophical view that says there is no creator, that the only thing that has ever existed is matter. Matter is eternal, and we have come forth as material, only material beings, no soul, no spirit, and we are a product of the material atomic world or universe, atoms bouncing off of each other equals us. That's materialism. It is the default worldview of the, the, the secular schools. It's the default worldview of the secular media. It's the default worldview of a lot of Christians. They, they know and believe there's a God, but they don't think like there's one. And one op, al, alternative proposed is mysticism. Well, if there is a God, then he must be talking directly to me. And then the Bible becomes irrelevant and we will not do the hard work of thinking through what Paul is saying, which is what we're doing now. So I've slowed down on purpose here in the prayer to show you this is the spiritual life. These are the goods. This is why young people, this is why your parents drag you to church. This is why we're on the things of God all the time. This is why we do the things we do. You don't go to church because your parents took you. You go to church or your parents are taking you to church because they have a glimpse of these things. And if it's not so, they didn't come here because we teach the Bible constantly. Nobody wants to go through that. It's too much work. Can't you tell us some stories? Let me, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs. And the last pig got with the word, the end. All right. I, that's my way of saying, I don't think we're up here to tell stories. But in truth, what would have happened at the end of the three little pigs is they would have eaten the wolf because pigs are nasty animals. Anyway, all right. <laughs> all right, now, I hope you can see something we can't see. You can see that Paul's prayer is about the spiritual realities of life. Here's the sensitivity I want you to have about this. When you find yourself not really having access to what he's talking about, that's, that's, a warning. That is, that is the, the alarm going off that things aren't where they should be. I know that feeling. I pray that you know that feeling too. Where these spiritual things don't say, yeah, it's the spiritual stuff. When you have that sense, you don't have what he's talking about here in terms of a spirit, a mindset of, of wisdom and revelation. You're not there. And that's, it's a very helpful moment when you realize that, oh, I'm not where I need to be on these things. And, that, and what do I do about it? What do I do when I realize that I've slipped out of my spiritual life and I'm, I'm kind of shut up. If, if I'm not obeying God's commands to walk by the spirit, then I'm disobedient. I need to confess my sins. Definitely need to be cleansed from sins and walk in the light as he's in the light. That's first John chapter one. 
you need to engage in the thought process of John in 1 John 1. You need to think the thoughts of God. Maybe you need to have some promises memorized so you have actual words that God has said to call to mind. Like, I don't know, Heavenly Father, please give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation in your spiritual knowledge. That kind of thought process. And so I, I think the prayer here, 15 through 23, that's a no-brainer for a, a good memory list option. All right? But this is what we're after. And ask him for access to the things that he has shown you that you have in your heart, but you're not accessing. And verse 20, we're on the omnipotence of God. This strength or this might he worked in Christ when he raised him. The father raised the son from the dead and he sat down at his right hand in the heavens. The son sat down at the right hand of the father in the heavens. High above all rule and authority and power and lordship and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So tying my spiritual awareness of God's things to God's power is the rationale he's proposing. Is not up there? Oh, good. Good for you. That's, that's bad. Tying the things of God that he's told me, the spiritual life to the power of God, to the omnipotence of God is the rationale. I hope that's really obvious. That's the way to think about this. I mean, sometimes you might be so far from your biblical notebook or from your thinking about these things. Like when we talked about them in church, you're like, yeah, I was right there, but I just, I've lost track. Just look up at, just look up, just look at the, why are we here? Because Romans one tells us that the power of God is on display through creation. That's that's a, that's called general revelation. We know our creator's power from his creative works. It's an easy way to connect back to the creator. This is why our culture is so insidious in what we've done the last hundred years. By telling our children every day in school, all about the rocks and the trees and the birds and the animals and the mathematics and all the things of God's creation and completely cutting God loose from those things in their minds so they don't see the creation and see the creator. We've, 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 prevented them from thinking about the power of God. It's so vital. In other words, just grab the doctrine of omnipotence. Just grab that one and start talking to him about it. These things will come back to mind. Open Ephesians 1:20 and think it through. This power of God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and gave him this high exalted position so that in verse 22, and, and all things he's placed under his feet and he's given him his head over all things to the church. The father placed everything under the son's feet for this coming kingdom that will be political. It will be a military governance and its establishment. It'll be perfect righteousness despite sinful man. And that's called the millennial kingdom. It's a very bizarre time in human history. Perfect environment, perfect government, imperfect humans. You and I will be resurrected, ruling with Christ. There will be people that come out of the tribulation who live and are still sinful. And they're going to express their sinfulness as they multiply through the generations. And yet Jesus is going to rule this thing with a rod of iron. That's what Psalm 2 is talking about. And this is the destiny to which we're advancing. And the Father has placed all things under Christ's feet. And for now, he's given him as head over all things to the church. He is our head. He is the kephale. That's this word here in verse 22, our head. When I say things like we have a pastor already, it's Jesus. This is what I'm talking about. He's our great shepherd and guardian of the sheep. 
well, my pastor so-and-so or my pastor so-and-so. No, our pastor, our shepherd is Jesus, the great shepherd. One time I had a believer tell me, here's a story, had a believer tell me that I know who my pastor is, the one I'm supposed to listen to, because when I hear that pastor speak, I understand what he's saying. And that is a fulfillment of John 10, when Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. I have pastors that I love that will teach that. They'll say that you have a right pastor because my sheep hear my voice. But the problem with that was those were in red letters. Jesus said that. We're sheep dogs, pastors. It's a gift in Ephesians 4.11, but we're serving under your pastor, your shepherd, Jesus. And it's so bad to replace Jesus as your shepherd with some fallen sinful human that isn't Jesus. This is what he's talking about. He's the head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who is filled with all and in all. Your Bible says the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I want to talk about that real quick. You've been very attentive. I've been very explosive. I think we've all grown. <laughs> Listen to the phrase in the New American Standard. God the Father put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things of the church, which is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, if you read through that and thought you understood it, the test of your understanding would be to explain, what do you mean he fills all in all? What does that mean? Who's the he? How does this work? This turns out to be one of the great exegetical problems in Ephesians 1, and it's awesome when you actually run it down. What he's saying is that there is a channel from the Father through the Son to us. There is a channel of blessing, and we, the church, get the fullness of blessing that comes from the Father through the Son. That's what he's saying, but he's saying it in Greek, and here's how it works. Ta pleroma, tu tapanta in pasin pleroma menu. Now, you don't read Greek, most of you, I know, but some of you do, so it's a mixed audience. Now, look here. I've put in, uh, in purple the fullness. The fullness is a good thing. Whatever it's referring to, it has to do in Paul's literature with blessing, with spiritual blessing, with the good things that come from God. Fair enough? That word, the fullness, is being modified by a phrase that is a participle phrase. The blue letters are why this is hard. To pleromenu, the one who is being filled. To him who's being filled is what that says. Because it's a passive or middle, plerao, participle. And passive, it's, it's always passive. To say it's middle is a mistake. And some of you are like, well, I don't know what that means. All your English Bibles translate this as he fills. But it actually says he is filled. And it doesn't say he was filled. It says he's being filled. It's present, pa present participle. Present passive from plerao. The one being filled. Or the one... The, the being filled, it's the one, it's got to be substantive. So the fullness of him who's being filled is what the blue letters say, what the blue words are saying up here. And then you have two other nouns, tapanta and pasin. They're both the word pas. The word filled has a direct object, all things, and filled with all things, and the, the prepositional phrase in all. And so what it's saying, I believe, is that the church is the co-beneficiary. We, the church, are the fullness. We receive the fullness of him who's being filled, the son, his promotion and blessing, which is what we've been talking about in context. The father put all things under his feet and made him the head of the church. 
and with all things in all is the father's promotion and blessing. That's what he's talking about. And so you could translate that entirely. All things in all could be translated entirely, but it's the father blessing the son, blessing the church. That's what he's talking about in context. Now, if you read it in English, you didn't get that. I didn't either. I didn't really get it very clearly when I read it in Greek. It wasn't until I studied it and thought it through and, and, and reflected on it, that this is clearly what's happening. The son becomes a channel of God's blessing, God the Father's blessing to us. So the church is the fullness. See, people have wrestled over this. If the fullness is, is Christ being filled with the fullness and we the church are the fullness, and that means that we complete Christ. No, Jesus completes us. We're given the fullness that he gets from his father. That's, the, that's the, the, the theme throughout the New Testament. And it's part of the mystery of the church. Oh, come to the father through Jesus, the son, and give him the glory. Great things he has done. Our, our theme song, our little fight song, to God be the glory. This is God's strength on display. According to the work, we are, uh, remember, um, coming to the knowledge, the prayers that will come to the knowledge of the greatness, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us in accordance with the strength of his might, which God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sat him down at his right hand of the heavens, high above all rule and authority and power and lordship and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, name, the age to come. Furthermore, he's placed all things under his feet and he's given him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, that's the church, the fullness of him who is filled with all in all. This is what God wants you to know, what God wants you to think, the God wants what Paul wants God to give you. He has the love of God in him toward you and knows that this is the greatest thing. I want you to think, believers, about the thing you want in this life the most. The older or more seasoned, more mature you become, the better those things will be. Like I want a good relationship with my adult children, right? The things that you want. I want peace at home. I want financial stability. You know, the, the things that seem to be just the things that hurt us the most or challenge us and stress us out the most. I don't want to be afraid when I go to sleep at night. I want my health issue to just be resolved and I can just live comfortably. The things that you want, I'm not talking about asking little kids. I want a pack of trading cards. I, I want a toy or a kid at heart. Give me a race, a sports car or give me a sailboat or give me something that James says you, you don't have because you ask and want, you, you ask for your pleasures instead of on mission with what God wants. I'm talking about mature things that you want. You want tranquility at home. You want blessing in your marriages. You want blessing among the relationships in your family. You want to be successful professionally. You want to be respected by those that work with you because you turn in a good product and nobody can ever say a word about it except always good work. That, these are the kinds of things that you want when you're thinking about what you want. When you get into bad habits that destroy you, like substance abuse or things, it's because you don't have those things that you want very often and you get worried and you get anxious and so you start in down that road. But I'm just talking about the good things in life that we all know are desirable that really cause us anxiety and struggle and suffering. And we don't want to suffer, we wanna have peace. I'm talking about having peace. Those things that are the good things, like my estranged children that are adults have been restored and we actually get to sit down and have a meal together. Or my kid that was trouble at 15, at 23, we're friends now, and I can really be friends with her or him. 
These things that you want in life are still just the visible details of life. They're not life. This is life that we may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Do you see what I'm saying? Even the good things that are peace and fullness, healthy children, these are the details of life in which we are able with the few days we have, the 33,000 days, if you live a really long life, the few days that you have to engage in real life, the spiritual life that God has for you. And I don't want you to make boxes. Well, this is my spiritual life and this is my work life and this is my school life and these are my friends. Don't smoke pot here, smoke pot over here. See, like, like that's how Christians are doing today. It's a socially acceptable drug. People are, it's legal now for many states. So that's just, you know, that's how we've compartmentalized our lives. No, my life, all of it, all of it, we just broke down all the barriers is hidden with Christ in God. And among these people in this context, that bears itself out in this way. With my family, I teach them the word. With my coworkers, I have a gentle word. I have a word of wisdom. I have a word of encouragement. And if ever there's an occasion to go further than just a word of encouragement with prayer, we'll see where that goes. You see wisdom in the workplace. At my school, I have respect for the teacher espousing pagan myths and for their authority. And I meet those myths in my thinking with God's truth. And on occasion, a gentle word, an encouragement, opening the door to perhaps engagement there. In every case, I'm on mission. I'm thinking about what I'm really doing. Whatever the detail situation in life, which is the thing that you want, that, you, that God has you uncomfortable about, remember, he is uncomfortable with how much we neglect our spiritual lives, how much we're not thinking his thoughts after him, how much we don't have the spirit of revelation and wisdom that he wants to give us. And that is the key to understanding all the other details. Heavenly Father, we love you for this eternal life that you're sharing with us. We thank you that as we look into these things, the eyes of our hearts are opened to the riches of our inheritance, to the hope of our calling, to the uh, power, the, over, um, over the, the surpassing greatness of the glory of your power uh, that you've, you have toward us on our behalf. Father, we at, at times are afraid of what man can do to us, of rejection from people, of all these factors in life, but we're not supposed to be afraid. We're supposed to be courageous as we speak the truth in love, for the righteous are as bold as a lion. And Father, we want to be bold in the truth, not in our opinions, not in our emotional leanings, not even in our mystical intuitions, but in what you've told us. Give us, Father, this spirit Paul describes of wisdom and revelation. Transform us inside out so that we follow through with everything you've said. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.